Yeah, good morning again, and welcome. A few things here before we get going. Number one, if you're wondering where a lot of our college students are, many of them are on the way back, I trust, right on the way back from from Nashville, Tennessee. They've been at a student conference this weekend, the big national Every Nation student conference there. And a, a number of weeks ago, a number of you gave here to help fund that trip. And I know that uh, I was on the, on, the, on the phone with one of our staff, and they said, uh, among other great stories that happened, a young Jewish man who had come to that hookup culture out reach we did a few weeks ago. You may have heard that story. Came, went to the conference and, and gave his life to Christ. Was water baptized there. Really a great story. So thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's a mir- miracles type stuff. So um, that's exciting. Number two is you may have heard we're doing three services on Easter. Easter is coming up March 27th in four weeks from now. Three service times. Please be thinking about considering who you could invite with you that day. It's going to be a great morning, a great time to experience Jesus and what this church is all about. And finally, the week after Easter, this is really cool, on April 3rd, we're excited to announce we'll be having in Stephen Mansfield. Stephen uh, is the New York Times bestselling author. He's sold, uh, excuse me, written more than 20 books, including The Faith of George W. Bush and The Faith of Barack Obama. Uh, He's a regular contributor to Fox News, CNN, Huffington Post. He'll be preaching both services that day, and then afterward doing a one-hour Q&A about how to handle the upcoming election as people of faith. Sounds pretty interesting, doesn't it? Yeah. There's a $5 cost for lunch, and space is limited to the first 120 people. Now, I said 75 the first service. I was wrong. Staff corrected me. So 120 folks, but space is limited. You can register for that online. I'm sure it's going to fill up fast. There you go. All right, let's get into our time in God's Word this morning, and here we go. Your scripture reading is going to be on the screen to your left and to your right. It's selected verses from the book of Proverbs. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. A fool's mouth lashes out with pride, but the lips of the wise protect them. Pride goes before destruction a haughty spirit before a fall. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the unplowed field of the wicked produce sin. Pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain honor. Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord, and humility comes before honor. Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. That's God's word this morning. Now, as you can tell, we are in the middle of a series. We're looking at the subject of wisdom from the book of Proverbs. And over the last few weeks, we've been applying, in theory, what we've learned to our relationships. And what we're, what we're looking at this morning is something that Proverbs sort of describes as the ultimate relationship killer. And it's, again, what the book calls pride. And look at Proverbs sixteen eighteen here. It's perhaps the most misquoted verse in all the Bible, except for that one in Timothy about money and love and all that. But it says this, uh, it says pride goes before what? Destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So off the bat here, wisdom, this is saying wisdom is understanding that your life is moving kind of like a train. It's, it's moving on a direction. And when there's pride at the front, right? When there's pride driving the train, when there's pride pulling the train, when it's leading the way, just wait. Destruction is soon to follow. And yet, on the other hand, Proverbs 
also gives us, and hear this, Proverbs gives us the key to finding wisdom itself as well as the foundation for every great relationship you'll ever have. And it's something called humility. Humility, look in 1533 there, it says, Humility comes before honor. When pride leads, destruction follows. When humility leads, church, there's God's glory. How can we find that this morning? Let's look at three things from Proverbs. First, let's look at what it means to earn a verdict, to touch the universe, and finally we'll see the somebody who became a nobody. Let's begin to number one, earning a verdict, and just ask off a top, what is pride? Let's sort of try to define the term here. What's pride? And I'd like to, to ask you to consider looking at an answer from a different angle this morning than perhaps you have before. And let's just define it like this. Pride is, in a phrase, pride is trying to earn a verdict about who you are. And this concept, it comes up over and over again in the Proverbs, but let's just look at one specific insight the Proverbs gives us over in chapter 18, verse 12. It says, before a downfall, the heart is what? What's the word? Haughty. Yeah. So what's going on here in a human heart before it crashes and burns? Well, it says the word haughty, which is the Hebrew word gavah, which means literally self exalted self-exalted pride is in other words pride is the exalting it's the it's the lifting up of self at the self's own initiative for the self's own glory to take the winner's circle in life yeah it's the state of the heart when the heart does not know what it is or who it's for it's what the heart does this is telling you when the heart does not know what to do there's a great case study about how pride works, about the heart of pride. In the Old Testament, in the book of Esther, it's the case study of a man named Haman. And if you know the story, if you know who Haman is, you may know that he was second in command in that day uh, of the Persian Empire when the story of Esther took place. And uh, at that point, he's second in the empire. He's subject only to one man, the king of Persia, of course, a man named Xerxes. And Except for Xerxes, it says, everyone in Persia, in the Persian kingdom, empire, bows before Haman. Everyone, that is, except for one man, a man named Mordecai, who is Esther's uncle and guardian and a central figure in the story. And Mordecai refuses to bow before Haman. And the story says, when Haman saw that Mordecai wouldn't bow before him, oh, he became enraged and he was so angry that he went home, and here's what he did next. We're going to take a look, and it's actually supposed to be a bit funny. It says that Haman went home to talk about himself. Oh, here's what it says in chapter 5. It says, then Haman went out that day, glad and pleased to heart. Again, his day started off well enough, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house, sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons in every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. How about that? Now, think about that. Haman here. Haman has risen, right, to second 
Second in all the Persian Empire, in the whole kingdom, everybody bows before him. He's got wealth. He's got honor. He says he's got ten sons, which was an extreme sign of honor in that culture. He's shrewd. He, he can politically outmaneuver any man in the kingdom, including the king when you read it. And yet, and yet he can't take it when one, one lowly and insignificant Jewish man won't bow before him on command. Why is this? Oh. C.S. Lewis put it like this. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. So insightful. See, Haman here. Haman doesn't really want honor because he's already got it. No, he wants more honor than that guy right there, you know. And when he didn't get it, when he didn't feel honored, respected, seen, or thought about in the way he should have been thought about or seen, he gets on the phone, right? What is he? He gets on the phone. He texts his friends, comes up, come over, guys, and he gives them like a tour of his trophies, right? Brings them through his all his trophy cases. Look at me here. Look at me there. He self-therapizes through self-aggrandizement. He makes himself feel better by making himself look bigger emotionally stirred someone was entreating him how he thought he ought to be treated and we're not talking here about some fundamental respect for the dignity of another person no, we're talking about a person who just can't take it when they don't get what they want when they want it oh and here's why here's why Haman is such a great case study in pride he's totally unhappy throughout the book Every time we see him, he's miserable, he's scheming. The only times he's not totally unpleasant to be around are when he's telling himself how great he is. Oh, he's always unhappy because he's always thinking about himself. And let me just suggest to you today, if you're perpetually unhappy in your life, in your marriage, in your church, let me just suggest to you that maybe it's not just that person Who's to blame? The person or the thing won't give you the respect you think you deserve. Maybe it's your pride. Maybe it's your pride. Maybe you just think you know how it ought to go, right? But in the end, if you know the story, because Haman, Haman's only and solely concentrating on himself, he was able to be duped by appeals to his pride and his vanity and his plan to kill Mordecai and eliminate the Jewish people. It backfires on him. And it cost him his life. He was literally hanged on the gallows he himself had built. Pride is the ultimate foolishness. And that's bad. Oh, it's bad. But what I hope you'll see this morning is that it's actually worse than that. And here's why. Because pride is a focus on the self, there's more than one form of it. There's the upper form of it, sort of the superiority form of it. And that's, that's generally recognizable, right? I mean, you can see that generally in yourself and other people, like you can see it in Haman's life here. Because again, pride's always asking, how do I look? How am I being treated? Am I being respected and thought of in the way I deserve? But... There's another form of pride. It's a little sneakier. It's harder to see, but it still has self as the focus. And that's the, that's the lower form of pride, sort of the inferiority form of it. And this is when, when you beat yourself up over nothing, you, you feel like you're terrible or a failure, generally worthless, and you let others know this is how you feel about yourself. Why? So they'll give you the affirmation and approval you need to stop vibrating in life, settle down, and be okay. And 
can you see why this inferiority form is still absolutely pride, right? Because at this point, right, it's still all about who? You. You're still steering the conversation towards yourself. It looks like humility. Oh, but when you get up close, it's, it's really not. Because it's just using a lower position to turn everything toward the self. And this is, by the way, that in general, a humble person, hear this, is not an overly needy person. Because when you're around someone who's humble, right, you, you may or may not walk away thinking, wow, that, that's such a humble person. But what do, you, what do you walk away thinking? You walk away thinking, wow, they were genuinely interested in me. But when you're around a needy person, around a prideful person, you think, man, wow, that was all about them, right? Yeah. See, either way, upper or lower, you can still be, I can still be a Haman. I got to have that person right then to affirm me right now. Or else, why is that? I mean, what's, what's wrong with us? What's going on? The playwright, Arthur Miller, most famously known or more famously known as one of the husbands of Marilyn Monroe, wrote a play called After the Fall. Interesting title, right? And Arthur Miller wrote, after, he wrote it after his marriage to Marilyn Monroe failed. And he, he put his thoughts about his own life and failed marriage to Marilyn in the mouth of the character, a man by the name of Quentin, a Jewish intellectual. And Quentin's life also fell apart. Quentin's marriage also fell apart. And this is what Arthur Miller said through Quentin. He said, for many years, I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then what a good lover. Then a good father. Finally, how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that one moved on an upward path towards some elevation where I would be justified or even condemned a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. Yeah. Now, over the years, critics have hated the play, but audiences have loved it and flocked to it because he's on to something here, right? You can see that. He, he's seeing and saying that all his efforts in life, his efforts at relationships, his efforts day to day in his job, his efforts in his marriage were really after getting one thing Getting a verdict. Getting a verdict. He, he said his life has been one big series of proofs trying to prove he was someone. What ruined him? It was trying to earn a verdict. Demi Moore in Vanity Fair a couple of years ago, she put that same feeling into words when she was asked, what drives you in life? She said this. She said, I would say what scares me is that I'm going to ultimately find out at the end of my life that I'm really not lovable that I'm not worthy of being loved, that there's something fundamentally wrong with me. What's she saying? She's saying she doesn't have a verdict. Doesn't have a verdict. And therefore she's afraid. She fears. Now you may, you, you may think Miller and Moore are sounding neurotic here, but I want you to consider. Consider their insight, right? Consider their honesty and ask again. Ask, what if? What if this is me? What if I am using that thing, right? Maybe my job, my position, my intellect, my hurt, maybe even my faith as a platform to be somebody. 
See, the essence of a haughty spirit, church, doesn't just show up in some oversized, blowhard personality who insults people all the time. But a haughty spirit is any person, loud or soft, any heart, which moves to exalt itself, lift itself up, to give itself attention. See, a haughty spirit, oh, it doesn't just do the thing to do it for the betterment of others, for the cultivation of wisdom or virtue. No, but a haughty spirit does the thing as a means of exalting the self. Politicians do it, pro athletes do it, professors do it, pastors do it. That's what pride is, trying to earn a verdict. And by now you're saying probably that sounds pretty bad, and it is. Welcome to Mosaic Church today. So what's the way out, huh? What's the rescue? Something Proverbs gives us. Proverbs gives us a rescue. It's something that the book calls Humility, humility. Let's let's go now to number two, touching the universe. What I want, what's so powerful here, and what what I'll hope you see, what you'll see, is that the book of Proverbs doesn't just show you that humility is important, but it also points us to how important it is, to why it's important. It shows you that humility is important in verses like twenty one four. It says, "Haughty eyes and a proud heart." Look at this. The unplowed field of the wicked produce sin. It's a beautiful metaphor here. It's saying, and it's giving you a practical reason why pride is foolish and humility is wise. It's comparing here a prideful heart to something, to an unplowed field. What's, what's an unplowed field? Well, an unplowed field is something, can you picture it, that can never grow anything good. It can never produce a crop because it's never been opened up through being dug up, through being cut up and cultivated. See, a person whose heart is unplowed is a person who won't allow anybody to touch them, won't allow anybody to teach them, won't allow another person into their life and hand over the keys to a plow. The wise person, though, the humble person says to a friend, faithful are your wounds to me. Here are the keys. Plow my heart. Do you see rocks, friend? Uh, Do you see any weeds that could choke me? I'm blind. I need you to help me pull them out. I've discovered over the years, whenever I get into a counseling situation with somebody, I can always tell whether or not somebody is ready to get free from whatever's choking them. And here's how I can tell. It's actually pretty simple. When the person doesn't care anymore how they look, when they don't care about their reputation, when they don't care about what what people think about them, when they don't care about sitting in judgment on the person who gave the advice, they're ready to get free. And when they're willing to do anything, anybody tells them they're ready. But when they're more concerned about their reputation as a person who's got it all together, you might as well not even get involved. They're not ready to get free. Look Look at 1310 here. It says, where there's strife, arguing, fighting, there's pride. But wisdom is found in who? Those who take advice. See, when a person, when a person fights you about a problem that's there, when they always say, hey, hey, it's someone else's fault when they justify their behavior, you know their heart is an unplowed field. Rocky, gravelly, just having weeds grow up. They don't let anybody get past the surface, and they condemn themselves to being choked by the weeds. See, an unplowed field pushes up. It says sin, right? Grows weeds automatically. Hear this, because it's the very act of not opening up 
that causes your problems. See, your problem really isn't your, your addiction. It isn't your anger or your whatever. Your problem is your pride. It's an unwillingness to open up and be plowed by another. Oh, but have you noticed? Have you ever noticed that when, when you or when someone else in a relationship, when you just take the lower place, right? When you quit caring about who's right, when you quit caring about how you look, when you stop caring about your reputation or having to be the man or the woman, have you ever noticed it's like magic is happening in that moment. There's something going on. It's like all of a sudden, 10 years of problems, 20 years of problems can just, can just disappear in a moment. I mean, why is that, right? I mean, why is it that five years, 10 years, 20 years of frustration, problems, patterns can just melt away in a moment? In other words, let's ask, why does true humility work like magic? It's because, it's because the Bible doesn't just show us that humility is important, but here, here it points us to why it's so important. Theologians for centuries, they've used a fancy word to describe, catch this, what's inside God. You may ask, what do you mean what's inside God? I mean this, that God, according to Christianity, is one person, excuse me, one God, but he's tri-personal. There are three persons inside God. God is a relationship within himself. It's a mystery. It's beautiful. And there's one word that these theologians have used to describe that relationship. And it's this word. It's the word perichoresis. Perichoresis, it literally means rotation. Or more poetically, dancing. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, dancing. What's going on inside God is a, is a kind of a dance, but not just any kind of a dance, because when those theologians, when they looked at, at verses and chapters like John 17 in the New Testament, where we see Jesus Christ praying and thanking God the Father for giving him glory and honor from before the world began you begin to see there's something going on inside God. We're being shown the very meaning, the fabric of the universe. Why? Oh, because here you see what the universe is all about. It's this word. It's the word self-giving. The Father giving glory to the Son. The Son giving glory to the Father, both honoring and sending the Spirit, rotating. There's a rotation. There's a kind of a dance. All of them humbling themselves, taking the lower place, Humility, then, it works like magic, in essence, because it is. It's the essence of the supernatural. See, humility is what makes God dance. Dance. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He says, in self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm, not only of all creation, but of all being. For the eternal word, that's Jesus, also gives himself in sacrifice when he was crucified. He did that in the wild weather of his outlying provinces, which he had done at home in glory and gladness from before the foundation of the world. This is not a law which we can escape. What is outside the system of self-giving is simply and solely hell. Self-giving is absolute reality. See, see, when you humble yourself, when, when you take the lower place, you're touching, he's saying, the rhythm of all creation. It's like you're putting your fingers on the pulse of the Trinity. 
and you're learning to dance to the heartbeat of God. Oh, but when you're prideful, on the other hand, uh, when you're prideful, you look like that, like that really awkward guy at the junior high dance. Or maybe more accurately, like about half of us on Friday night, right? At the marriage event, or maybe like me, you thought. You just can't catch the rhythm, right? Some of you have heard the song, the rhythm's going to get you. You thought, why hasn't it ever gotten me? I can't <laughs> seem to dance, right? But, but listen, humility, humility, it's getting your finger on the pulse of the universe. And now as you move in time to that, your life works beautifully. Your marriage works beautifully. Your parenting works beautifully. That's, that's why being humble isn't just good. It's wise. It's wise. Now, when I got married, perhaps like a lot of foolish men, I used to think, you know, you know she got the good end of this deal. Look at me. I mean, good thing she married me. I can help her with all her problems and help make her great. She should be pretty grateful, you know. And she suffered a fool well enough at the beginning until a couple of years into our marriage when it became apparent that she was not doing well in their relationship and that really she had become worse for wear over time being related to me. Things hit ahead one day when she said to me, why is it that when we fight, you're always right and feel better, but I'm always wrong and feel worse? I said, I'm not always right, showing her that I was right about not always being right and that she was wrong about not all, about always being wrong, right? She said, though, she said, you win every time. You can out-argue and outsmart me and always sound so logical and put together but there's something not right with you. Oh, yeah. Now, at that point, I've got a choice. I can keep her out of my field, right? I cannot let her words plow my heart, or I can reach out. Reach out for the pulse and the rhythm of creation, of self-giving, of humility, and I can dance along with the Trinity by uttering. The six hardest words any man will ever have to say, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. Yeah. See, my heart, my pulse says, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm right, you're wrong, you owe me. Over and over, yeah. But perichoresis, universe dancing, says, sit down, son, let humility lead. Humility, see, it's not just practically important. Can you see? It's cosmically important. It's not just what the universe is all about. Catch this. It's what the universe is always about. And this is why the entire Bible tries to point you to this, not just here in Proverbs, but in all the stories too. I mean, I mean why do you think when you read it, God is always working through who? The unloved woman, right? It's never beautiful beauty pageant Rachel who carries the seed of the Messiah. It's unloved, ugly, abandoned Leah who does. It's not the powerful firstborn hunter outdoor guy Esau God uses. It's the bookish homeboy. Sneaky Jacob, right? It's Bathsheba. There's the adulteress, not Michael, the king's daughter, over and over again. I mean, it's like the plot line you see coming a million miles away. You know what's going to happen, but why? I mean, is God, does he just pull for the underdog? Well, yeah, to a certain extent, but there's more here. What does this show you? What is God wanting us to see here? It's 
It's number three, finally. It's the somebody who became a nobody. When you read things like Proverbs 15, 33, like this, it says, Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord, and humility comes before honor. What's it showing you? Is it showing you how to have great relationships? Yeah, it does. But, but listen, there's, there's much more here. It's showing you, hear this. This verse here is showing you how to get the verdict your heart has always wanted. This verse is showing you, in other words, the kind of salvation God offers people in humanity. Or to put it one more way, this verse is showing you the heart of the gospel itself. You say, how is that? Well, look at it. It's saying that praise, right? Glory, honor, admonition, excuse me, promotion, exaltation comes to the humble, right? The lowly, the nobody. But, but how is that, right? How can that be? I mean, what has the nobody done to deserve this? And the answer is nothing. And that's the point. This saying God honors, God glorifies, God exalts the nobody, the nobody. If you set out from this day forward to change the world, how would you do it, huh? How would you do it? Would you, would you, would you go on a world tour? I mean, would you rent out, for starters, like the Irwin Center here, right? Maybe get somebody big and famous, like Kendrick Lamar, Taylor Swift, somebody to open for you, right? The opening concert. Would you, would you get the Kardashians to live tweet you through the process? Hashtag change the world, right? Over and over. What, what if you said, I want entire civilizations, on continents around the world millennia after I'm gone to build their life around my teaching. What would you do? Would you, would you write a book and go on tour? Or would you choose to be born to an unwed teenage mother, grow up in a blue-collar home, the son of a poor carpenter, never go to college, never leave home till you were 30, talk about a failure to launch, right? Never get married, never have a family, never write a book, never meet with a single important person until you were about to die, live in a one-stoplight town, then recruit illiterate fishermen and rejected IRS agents. It's true. To be your leaders. What kind of person am I describing? It's Jesus Christ. The ultimate nobody. Nobody. And yet, and yet, in the New Testament, a man by the name of Paul, centuries after Proverbs was written, has the audacity to say this about that nobody. That he says that that nobody has given him a totally new kind of verdict, a new kind of self-image about himself. And Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 4. It's amazing. He says, I care very little. If I am judged by you or by any human court, indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, perhaps you've seen sort of a you know, different version of this on somebody's tattoo once or twice, but that's not what this is saying. <laughs> because this year, frankly, is astonishing almost offensive because on one hand Paul is saying he says my heart is like a courtroom he's saying every person's heart is like a courtroom and every person's heart is looking for a verdict but he says I don't care about your verdict on my performance you say well is that because he's got low self-esteem well hardly I mean read Paul's letters he's brimming over with confidence right well where did he get confidence you say well maybe he got it from how he feels about himself 
But that's only because we're modern people, and that's our approach. Because today we don't know how to heal low self-esteem without bringing in just massive doses of self-focused self-esteem. See, when people are broken, they feel low and insecure, all our modern approach can do is say, don't worry about what other people say, honey. You just take care and hear what you have to say. Just think about what you think about you. But, but that never works. I mean, thinking about me, what I think about, that's the worst advice ever. I mean, how could that help you? Because what that's saying is basically the reason people aren't applauding you and cheering you is because you weren't good enough to get it. So just lower your standards, right? Man, just become a person of low standards and feel good about being less than you hoped you'd be. How can that help? Oh, yeah, that makes me feel real good, right? But the reason I'm a happy person is that I got low standards. No. But what if, on the other hand, you've got really high standards in life, right? And you can meet them. At that point, you're saying, well, I've set my high standards higher than your high standards. Therefore, you should emulate me. Be like me, right? I'm what you should aspire to be. I mean, what kind of person are you becoming at that point? A bit arrogant? Disdainful? Oh, wait. Prideful. Prideful, right? So a self-verdict is no help either. And Paul knows this, which is why he says, I don't even judge myself. I don't get a verdict about me from me. Listen, this is off the map. Listen, our, all our modern psychology, every self-help book, it doesn't give you anything like what the Bible gives you. Oh, this leaves something entirely new in the place of everything you've ever heard. Paul doesn't have low self-esteem or high self-esteem. What's he got? Hear this. He's got God's verdict on what his performance is. And what is God's verdict? How does he do it? Paul says, I take down into myself the deepest part of me, the awareness, the knowledge, the existential reality, the feeling that the triune, eternally powerful, loving and dancing God is absolutely captivated and delighted with me, 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 me. That the God who danced for an eternity before a single human ever, ever drew a breath is now rotating inside me, dancing in me in spite of everything I've ever done and in spite of everything I've never done and will never do. You say, oh, that's, that's pretty amazing. How do I get that? How do I get a verdict? Apart from my performance, here it is. It's only if you boast in the way, Paul says, is the key to changing your life. Galatians six fourteen. He says, may it never be that I would boast except in what? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he say the cross? Oh, it's because in and at the cross, we find God's ultimate verdict, which is this. At the cross, the greatest somebody who's ever lived became the ultimate nobody. Instead of being recognized as he ought to have been, Jesus was mocked and jeered by his audience. And when he cried out for his heavenly father's approval, he found that the breaking of his own soul It was absent as well. And on the cross, he got the verdict we deserve. See, God made him in that moment the one who knew no sin to become sin itself, that we might become what? The righteousness of God, the approval of God himself. See, the thing that makes God perfect, Paul says, I get, that's how God sees me. See, Jesus got the verdict we deserve, which is this, depart from me, I never knew you, you evildoers. 
so that we could get the verdict Jesus deserves, which is this. Well done, good, good and faithful servant. Well done, well done. Have you heard God speak that to you? Well, well done. That's the verdict God has for you. The world says, pride says, you earn a verdict and you give it to God and others for them to cheer you. But God says, you could never have done it. I've judged you. I found you wanting, but I've given you the verdict I won. I give you the verdict and then I applaud you and cheer you. And that's the gospel. And that, church, that's what dissolves all the hurt and all the pain, all the insecurity on the inside. It's the approval of God. Approval of God. Thinking about, contemplating God's love for you over and over. How he delights in you. How he said, well done. Well done. That's what gives you poise in life. Balance in life. A woman by the name of Julian of Norwich, maybe you've heard of her, was the first great female writer, many think in the English language, and she lived in the 14th century, and she loved God, but she went through a near-death experience, and as she lay dying at the age of 30 from a rare illness, she called out to Jesus to heal her, and he did. And in the middle of it all, as she lay in her deathbed, what she thought was her deathbed, she had a vision of God holding her like a person holds a seed in their hand. And this vision of God's unconditional love for her changed her to stay with her the rest of her life. And this is what she said about what God's unconditional love and approval did for her. She said this, she said, we, for we are so preciously loved by God that we cannot even comprehend it. No created being can ever know how much and how sweetly and tenderly God loves them. I learned a great lesson of love in this blessed vision for of all things, contemplating and loving the Creator made my soul seem less in its own sight and filled it full with reverent fear and true humility and with much love for my fellow Christians. Friend, do you lack love today? Do you lack humility today? Contemplate your Creator and His great love for you. Have you opened up and allowed someone to plow the field of your heart? Have you given over the keys to a plow to a trusted friend? Have you gotten a new verdict on who you are? You can today. Let's pray as we go to him in faith and trust this morning. We come to you now. We thank you for what your word shows us. Thank you for what you've done for us. How you've given us a way out from our culture and from our own hearts when they condemn us. Or I pray for every person here, for every one of your beloved people. They would hear the words this morning, well done. And when we think and when we know we don't deserve it, well, that would just drive us further into your love. If you're here this morning and you've never, on one hand, you've never handed over the keys of uh, the, of a plow to a, a friend in your life or a, a trusted mentor or, or a coach or someone, a community group leader, and you're saying, that's me this morning. God's tapping me on the shoulder. I need to do that. Would you raise your hand today and pray for you? Yeah. Lord, I'm praying for these. Well, they would just believe your word. You oppose the proud. You give grace to the humble. Well, they would have the conviction 
that it's the unplowed field that produces all the bad stuff. But the plowed field brings a harvest. Give them grace. Lord, a conviction to walk out of here and text, to call, email, whatever. And secondly, if you're here this morning and you've never gotten a new verdict on your life, never become a Christian, you said, this is my moment. I want to do that today. Would you raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for you. Lord, I pray for all of us at the moment where we slip back into the idolatry of an external verdict or trying to get an internal verdict. That you break that in us. That you bring to our hearts and minds, souls, this truth. If God's for me, who can be against me? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love that thought. I mean, what Pastor Morgan is preaching on this morning is, is really the, the biggest thought that set me free in my own life. I, Dad left me when I was three, and I grew up my whole life trying to figure out who I am. What's my identity? How do I earn a verdict? How do I prove other people's opinions? And when the age of 19, Christ got a hold of me and began to speak into my heart, this one truth is that, man, you, you will never do enough to earn the approval you feel you need. But in Christ, you've already received it by me. And when I begin to recognize that the king of the universe, the most important being in the entire universe, I look down and said, oh, I want you. I love you. I accept you. I'm pleased with you. And you're my son. And I will follow you. Man, it has set me free from all that pressure to perform and to, to try to win people's approval. And here's what I learned, man. I, I love my wife better because of that. I love my children better because of that. I love my friends better because of that, because of this one simple truth. And I hope we grasp this today. You can never love others unconditionally until you first understand how unconditionally loved you've been. You see, when we, when we interact in relationships, to try to win approval. And that's pressure. My prayer is that we can be the kind of a church that walks out of these doors and the rest of this week in our homes and our workplaces and our neighborhoods, at the gym, wherever we might go, we'd be able to walk and carry that kind of confident humility. This is who I am. And I want to give all that I have to you. It's only when that, when we have that identity, can we give ourselves away the way Christ gave himself to us. And I hope we want to be that kind of a church. Would you stand on your feet with me tonight today as we dismiss here in prayer?